Good morning, LifePoint family and guests. It's good to be here this morning. I'm glad you're here. Going to kind of start broad and kind of begin with where are we in our overall series? You may remember George started a prayer series for three weeks, and he's going to finish that prayer series. But in between those two bookends, we're laying a foundation for prayer. We're laying the very reason that you and I can go before God and pray beyond the Holy of Holies into the Holy of Holies with God and pray. Rob had started this whole foundation out with what is Scripture and how Scripture, what is the whole picture of Scripture and how can we depend on that? Dane talked about our Most High God and how can we always depend on the one who is faithful, God, to us. And then last week, Marty covered how do we work through suffering. So if you want to see any of those series or if you want to go back and catch up on George's um, first half of his series, it'll finish in a couple of weeks, um, then you can do that online. So you can go online and find those. But today I, I get the privilege of talking about a word we don't use very much anymore, redemption. We don't really talk about that much anymore. When my wife and I are just having casual conversation, redemption doesn't come up unless we're talking about Christ. Now if you're over 50, you remember redemption is where you took all your green stamps in and redeem them for some little item. If you're under 40, redemption's where you go to Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and & Buster's and you get all these really expensive coupons and then go train $100 worth of coupons in for $5 item. That's the way that works. But that's where redemption, we don't have that very much in our language anymore. But God has designed all of the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of the foundation around redemption. The gospel message centers around being redeemed, a redeemer and redemption. So today we're going to look at five facets of redemption. For a lot of you, it's just going to be a review, solidifying who you are in Christ and remembering what is redemption, the hope that we have in all of eternity. For some of the rest of you, you may not even know what that word means. You may never even have realized that we need to be redeemed in order to spend eternity with Christ. Without redemption in our Redeemer sitting at the right hand of God, then you and I don't have an advocate and an intercessor there beside God, interceding for us. If we don't have that redemption, then our prayer would be a useless endeavor. That's how all this fits in. We wouldn't have prayer because we would not have access to God. So today we're going to look at Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, it's going to be deep theology. I love theology. Every one of Paul's letters is written around two facets. The first half of Paul's books are theology, the what. The last half of his books is the so what. How does this really work out? So I'll tell you right now, the so what, how this works out other than hope for you and perseverance for you through trials, the way this works out is you go to Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 and read those later today. Especially 6, where Paul gives us all the armor of God and says, pray without ceasing. And he basically says, you can do that because of what I've told you in Ephesians 1 through 5. So that's what we need to be able to do is eventually get to Ephesians 6. But since I only have one Sunday, we won't get there. You'll have to do that on your own. Let me tell you a little story that kind of illustrates what redemption is. There's a story told of a little eight-year-old boy. We'll call him Timmy. I don't know what his real name was. But Timmy had made a boat, a little sailboat. Out of wood. He had worked day and night, he and his father, building that boat together. And so it was a little sailboat that he would take down on the edge of the river and sail on the edge of the river. And the currents always would bring little Timmy's boat back to him. So he'd chase it down the river, grab it, take it back up, and let it flow down the river. Well, one day a storm was coming in, and the river was rising a little bit, and a little bit stronger current, a little stronger winds, and Timmy's boat began to go down the river, way down the river. Timmy ran alongside of it as fast as he could, but eventually the boat disappeared out of sight. So Timmy went back to his home, his heart broken, told his dad what had happened, and his dad said, I'm sorry, Timmy. Sorry you lost the boat that you spent so much time making. Well, fast forward about two or three months later, Timmy and his dad went to a market downstream about 35 miles away. And Timmy was, and his dad were walking down the road, and Timmy looked up and he saw in a pawn shop window his boat. Timmy got all excited. He runs over there, runs into the store and says, Mr. Mr., that's my boat in your window. And the man says, no, it's my boat. I, I, I bought that boat. That boat's mine now. 
So Timmy runs back outside to his dad and says, Dad, Dad, I have to have my boat. So his dad gives him the money. Timmy walks into the store, and he buys the boat. As Timmy's walking out of the store, he's just kind of talking to himself, talking to his boat, and his dad overhears him say, I made you once, and I bought you once. You are twice mine. That's redemption. God made us once. He created us. He bought us once, and now we're twice God's. That's the story of redemption. Let's look at our passage. If you have your Bible or your phone or whatever you have with you this morning, or it'll be up here on the screen, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at this passage mainly 6 through 12, but we're going to start with chapter or verse 3 to kind of set it up. Now, occasionally, because we have an English Bible that has numbers and commas and periods to help us understand it better, we lose what's really written in the passage. I rarely say this is what Greek says or this is what Greek does. But if you had a Greek Bible in front of you, Ephesians 1, chapter, verse 1 through verse 14 is one sentence. One long sentence where basically Paul never stops. So what he's talking about in verse 1, 2, and 3 is just the beginning of a long run-on sentence. I like Greek because I have run-on sentences. Now, it doesn't really work when you're writing because people are like, well, does this comma go here or there? And where you put a comma can really make a lot of difference in a sentence. But in, in Greek, this is all one sentence. So verse 3, look with me there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the whole thing's a blessing. The whole passage is a blessing to us from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with ever spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice this in this passage. You're going to see a blessing and then who it's by. A blessing for us and then how we get that blessing. And every one of them are going to be in Christ, in Him. So notice that in this pattern as we read through this. So he says, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what are these? Even as means what are these in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So he chose us to be holy and blameless in Christ. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. So he predestined us, that means even before you were born, for adoption into himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There's Jesus again. According to the purpose of his will. In other words, God had purposed this. It is his will to choose us, to predestine us, to adopt us, to be homely and holy and blameless, um, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. We're going to get to that at the end of the message. What is to his, the praise of His glorious grace? With which God, He has blessed us in Jesus the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. So in Christ, another blessing, redemption through His blood, another blessing, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of another blessing, his grace, which he lavished. Lavished is a word that basically, without any holding back, everything I have, I lavish upon you. He lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight, another blessing, wisdom and insight, making known to us, so it's, he's going to make it known to us, the mystery of his will. According to his purpose. So God wants you to know his will. He's made known to us in Christ what is his purpose and what is his will. Which he set forth in Christ. What did he set forth in Christ? Verse 10. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So God had a plan in Christ to unite everything through him in heaven and earth eventually. Verse 11. Again, in Christ... We've attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, again, purposed, willful, of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, here's that phrase again, to the praise of His glory. That's a deep passage. That passage is a summation of the Gospels themselves. It's all about redemption. It's a deep, deep passage. So we're going to dig into it. Before we do that, let's first look at the word redemption. Um, 
Redemption is, a, is about seven different Greek words. We're not going to go over all those. I'm just going to give you the definition of those. So five definitions of a redemption. One, it's a legal term. It's out of a law field. So all the redemption terms would have been legal terms that have been in a law dictionary back if you'd have been in the early days. The first term is to legally acquit of a charge. So you and I are, think about all these as in Christ, these are who you are. You're legally acquitted of the charge of your sin through Christ. Second definition is to send away paid in full as if you're pardoned. It's a legal term. So you're totally paid in full and you're pardoned and you can go. You no more will have your sentence against you. The third term is to legally reconcile two disputing parties to settle a dispute legally. So who are the two disputing parties? Christ and Satan. Satan thinks he owns us. For a short term, he is the prince of this world. But then there's Jesus. And so redemption, the word redemption reconciles that. The two disputing parties, God is the judge, and he says, done. Those who are in Christ are legally pardoned. They are legally acquitted. Fourth definition is to buy or purchase as an ownership. You switch ownership. So in our situation, it's Jesus bought us, purchased us on the cross, and now we're his, legally. So if you were in a, a law, in, in Greek law, you would realize that these terms are all legal terms. And finally, it's to pay a ransom in order to release a person from bondage or captivity and give them freedom. So when you would buy somebody that was a slave in the Greek culture, then you could buy them and you would give them freedom. Now, why do I bring up these legal terms? Mainly because we need to understand our standing before God. God is the ultimate judge, the creator. What he says is all that matters. It doesn't matter what you and I think. It doesn't matter what we feel. If God says it, it's so. And so redemption is all these legal terms rolled into one. It's Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy you and me from our fallenness in sin and to set us free from the enslavement and the internal price of sin. Not free from sin, but free from the enslavement to sin. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Adam and Eve had come into the world enslaved to sin under total bondage, bondage of a nature that is corrupt, evil, and separated from its creator. So those who are not in Jesus are legally apart from God. They're separated from Him in the price of their sin. They're in darkness and under wrath. They're at enmity with God, war with God. And those who are apart from Jesus will die physically and spiritually one day. Their leader, their father, the Bible says, whether they realize it or not, is Satan. They are blinded and the things of God are foolish to them. They carouse at night. They make foolish decisions. They slander. They divide and cause disunity. Does that sound familiar today across the world? Sure. We see the devil's work all across our country and the world right now. We see that he is working hard overtime because he knows his days are numbered. He knows that his so-called job to kill, steal, and destroy is over one day. But not yet. And so Satan is about killing, stealing, and destroying our country, our leaders, our families, our relationships, and our joy. But praise Jesus, it's only for a season. Let's quickly take a biblical survey on redemption. We'll kind of run through a few scriptures here on what redemption is. Redemption is being spiritually free. How many of you ever watched a two-year-old in his play? They're not redeemed, are they? They're rebellious. Nobody taught them to be rebellious. Um, I hate to say my granddaughter, who's 14 months old, is depraved, but she is. She wants to hit. Where did she learn to hit? She didn't. It's in, her, it's in her sinful nature to want to do that. She wants to disobey. She's never been taught to disobey. It's natural. And we grow up with that enslavement to sin and that um, propensity to be rebellious. It says, no human is free of sin or free of its consequences, the Bible says. Romans 6.23 says that the price or the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins will die. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. 
Paul points out in Romans 3.10, every person has committed sin. There is none righteous, not even one. In the same letter, Paul says in Romans 7.14, that we are sold into bondage to sin. We're enslaved to corruption. Sin is our captor. It's our slave owner outside of Christ. And sin demands a price for release. Death is this price. Somebody has to pay the price of sin for redemption to occur. In Romans, Paul speaks of redemption as our having been freed from sin to become slaves of righteousness in Romans 6. In Galatians, he describes redemption in saying that Christ Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age to the will of God our Father. So we change ownership. We're redeemed. Galatians says in 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject to the, slow, to the yoke of slavery again. And finally, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise took, partook of the same. That through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9 wraps it all up by saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so none of us might boast. So if we're saved by grace through faith, what is grace? My favorite term of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And it says, by grace through faith. Faith is merely a sustained trusting in something. That something for the Christian is the cross and the empty tomb. The death of Jesus on the cross and then the resurrection from the tomb. That is a sustained faith that we have in that. It's called redemption. So today let's look at five facets of redemption why are we doing this? For hope. I want you to have such a solid foundation that when you pray every day, when you go through various trials, you can count it all joy because you have hope. You know your legal standing before all the world and before God. That's why we're talking about redemption. I want you to have a solid foundation. So when somebody accuses you, either in flesh or in the spirit, you can say, uh-uh. No, no, you, you can't accuse me because I know my rightful standing before God through Christ. So the first facet of redemption, pretty simple. We need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. Verse 6 and 7 here of Ephesians 1 says it this way. To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God's grace in verse 6 is His undeserved love and goodness towards us. Um, Psalms 23 says, For surely goodness and mercy, in other words, it will be goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. That's God's grace. If we're in Him, we have redemption. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. He's the Beloved mentioned here. He paid the price for our release in sin and death. And because of that, we now belong to Jesus by grace, through faith. We're now placed in His body, the body of Christ, and now we're acceptable to God. Do you realize that? God approves of you. God isn't judging you every day and saying, Boy, man, Bruce, you just really didn't live up to it today. Dennis, you just blew it today. Carrie, you just didn't quite make it today. God doesn't do that. You know who does that? The accuser. God doesn't do that. God looks at Carrie and says, Done, approved, special, accepted, perfect, holy, and blameless. Now, we may not see each other that way, but God sees us that way. Because we believed in Him who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and now has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, we are now in the Beloved, in the body of Christ, and we are the beloved of God. Say that to yourself real quick. I am the beloved of God. You are. That's what the Bible says. I didn't make that up. That's what the Bible says. 
So follow me logically a minute. I'm an accountant, so I like when things are logical. Only Jesus has the inherent right to all the goodness of God. Agreed? Agreed. But because we were identified with Jesus by faith, that goodness of God is now also our goodness. And because our Savior Jesus and our Lord is the beloved of the Father and possesses all the goodness of God, now in Him we are the beloved of the Father and possess all the goodness of God. Let me tell you how Scripture says it. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. The Father now loves us as he loves Christ. And because we are in him, we've kept his commandments. Because we're in Jesus, God now loves us. And blesses us, in verse 3 we saw in this passage, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Every Christian who is in Christ is a son or daughter of God and is blessed and beloved and approved. Jesus is the Redeemer. So who's the Redeemer? Jesus is, exactly. There is no other Redeemer, by the way. No one else can redeem. Other denominations, other religions, other cults, they have their own Redeemer. The problem is their Redeemer is dead and buried. Their Redeemer is not redempt. They did not redeem them from death and from their sin. They only led a good life, and I would question some of that. They're not a Redeemer. They never even quoted that they were a Redeemer. Jesus said He was. So, if we have a Redeemer, then let's look at number two. Who is the redeemed? Paul states it here in verse 1 of this chapter we didn't read. He says to start this whole long sentence from 1 to 14 out, he says, the saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ. That's who all this is about. Paul says the saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ. And then he goes to verses 2 through 14. Here's all the spiritual blessings they have. We are the ones who have redemption through His blood. He chose us, verse 4 says, that we should be holy. Verse 5, He predestined us. Verse 6, He blessed us. Verse 7, we have redemption. Verse 8, He lavished it upon us. Verse 9, making known to us. Verse 11, in Him we have. And in verse 12, so that we. All referring to us who are in Christ. Those who are redeemed. So quickly, as we know who we are as redemption, let's look at who those are that aren't under redemption. If you're not a redeemed child of the God, what does the Bible say we are? Those who don't know Christ. If you are redeemed, this is who those who are not redeemed that need your testimony. They need to know what your story is and how they can be redeemed. The Bible says that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan. They live in the lust of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. They are without hope and without God in the world. Chapter 4 of Ephesians says that we were formerly walked in that futility, where we were darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God. Because of ignorance and hardness of their heart, they are lost. They're separated forever from God. Those are those who don't know Christ. So you want to know why the world acts like it does? That's the reason. They act like they do because that's who they are. The things of the spiritual world, the Bible says, are foolishness to those who are outside of Christ. Christ died for that kind of person. That was me. That was you apart from Christ. We were in darkness under wrath. But God has given us light and brought us under grace. Christ gave himself, Titus 2.14 says, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Until we know the need for redemption, we have no need for the Redeemer. We stay in darkness. We're not under light and grace. So Jesus is the Redeemer and we are the redeemed. I know this is really elementary, but who's the Redeemer? And who's the redeemed? Us. Me. You. Exactly. Okay, what was the price of redemption? What did it cost for the Redeemer to redeem the redeemed? The price of redemption says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The price of redemption is the blood of Jesus, the life of the Son of God. Shedding of blood is a metonym for death. 
It's the penalty of the price of sin. We already talked about Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. In order for death to happen, you have to have shedding of blood. Christ's own death was the shedding of his blood, was the substitute for our death, the payment to buy us back, to redeem us. Now, I know in our modern day, where we like to be real sophisticated and we like to have elites in our world, I know that some Christians are offended by the precept that the Messiah's blood should be a ransom price. Some want to say that the blood sacrifice falls way back to some primitive religion and is no longer acceptable in vogue. Some hymnals have even gone so far as to exclude any of the hymns in them that talk about the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. However, if we lose that precept, we lose most of what's in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system of a lamb and other animal being slain was to teach us the horrific price of sin. That God knew sin would destroy our life. That it would tear apart human and mankind. God knew that, so God abhors, hates sin. So God wanted to give us some symbol of sin that would tell us the price, how heavy that price was. Jonathan Edwards said it about this way. Famous preacher said, If we remove Christ's blood from Christianity, then his death becomes a mere symbol of a cross we wear around our neck. Sin becomes only human frailty, not something that's horrific. The results of sin become an earthly tragedy, and love and grace are present without any righteousness or justice required. If we lose that term, the blood of Christ, then it just becomes a symbolic gesture that this poor, puny little man that lived 2,000 years ago died on a cross, and now he wants you to be a part of his family. That's not what happened. God himself and the person of Jesus Christ was on that cross, receiving the wrath of every sin, past, present, and future. Every sin crushed upon him on that cross. He took the penalty for all of that for you and me. The blood was shed. He gave his life so that we could be forgiven. Paul states in verse 7 here, In him, Jesus, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. A price has been paid to set us free. It's not trivial. It cost Jesus his life. He did it as joy because he knew what it would do for us. He knew it would break the bondage of sin. He knew it would give us life instead of death. He knew that a price would be paid and no longer would Satan have any hold over us. We would be broken from that. He made the payment for what otherwise would have condemned us to death. The blood sacrifice of animals was continually offered all through the tabernacle period, all through the temple period, and all through the New Testament period. Those animals were only a symbolic substitute. They could not pay. Hebrews 10 says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus, it says in 10.10, has been sanctified through the off- we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. He gave himself for us, Ephesians 5, 2 says, offering a sacrifice that was a fragrant aroma to God. He poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew says. And the writer of Hebrews says God's sacrifice sacrifice of his son Jesus was not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, his life. He entered the holy place once for all and obtained eternal redemption for us all. It's why the Apostle Paul I mean, the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation. He said, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The cross, the blood of Jesus, His perfect life, was the price of redemption. So if the price of redemption was the Redeemer's life to save the redeemed, then what is the result of our redemption? Let's look at number four, the result. Verse 7 through 9 says, The forgiveness of our trespasses was one result. According to the riches of His grace, He lavished upon us all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of the will. So God gave us forgiveness and He gave us wisdom and insight. 
Forgiveness of our trespasses, we've talked about that, became risen, becomes the negative aspect, trespasses, sins, that God forgives us in a positive way. And the other one is He gives us wisdom and insight. The primary result of redemption for the believers is forgiveness, one of the central salvation truths. It's why I was so drawn to Christ. I wanted to be forgiven. I wanted my past shame and guilt to be forgotten, to be done away with, to be never have to worry about again. That's what Jesus did with his redemption. Redemption brings forgiveness. We are freed from guilt and shame. Now, I know modern-day psychology, modern-day talk shows, I know they try to convince you and I that we are not responsible for our own sins, right? They tell me, well, my, I had bad parents. They say my genes were bad. They say my environment was wrong. They say my teachers were bad. There's something external causing me to sin. Now, that can be a contributing factor. It can tempt me to want to sin. It can predispose me of some of those things. But let's be real. Who ultimately sins? We do. We ultimately make that choice when it comes right down to it. Paul told the Jews, Through him Christ, forgiveness of his sins is proclaimed to you, and through everyone who believes is freed from all things. The sin were freed from guilt and shame. The Israelites have a, um, a festival that they celebrate called Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. On that day, and it was symbolic for us to know what redemption was going to be. On that day, they bring in two goats. One goat was, was slain and slaughtered, and the blood was sprinkled upon the, um, the altar to God. But the other goat, they would take it and put a red ribbon around its neck. And it was to signify that that's the sin of the people. And then the high priest would put his hands on that goat's head and would impute or say this into this goat is all of our sins. Now the people knew it was symbolic, but then they would take that goat and they would take it far, far out in the wilderness so that goat could never come back. And it was a symbolic gesture in that festival to tell people in Christ, eventually in the blood sacrifice, your sins will be gone forever. And that goat would never come back. And the people realized that's release from our sin. Now we know that really didn't release them for their sin. But it was symbolic of what was to come. That enactment, that beautiful meaning was that God was going to do away with their sin one day. They looked forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. It was to give away. That whole act was to get our sins out of here. To get them away from us. And that's what Jesus did. The Bible says that our sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. It says that they're forgiven as far as the depths of the sea. Both referring to infinity. God's forgiveness is infinite. Your sin's gone forever. Um, hundreds of years before Calvary, Micah said this, Who is a God who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, Micah says, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, God will cast all the sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 18 and 19. God's forgiven your sin. It's gone. Jesus said to the lady caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We see in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God's forgiveness is complete. Why am I belaboring this point? Because I know you. I know me. I know the accuser. He loves to bring this back up to us. He loves to remind you of things that happened to you when you were a teenager if you're older now. As a teenager, he loves to bring things up you did three or four or five years ago because he wants to accuse us and say, you're not worthy. You're a terrible person. And I say, you know, I know that. That's why I needed redemption from Jesus because I am a terrible person. I have many sins in my past, my present, and will in my future. But God forgave them all in Christ. He forgives all our sins in a sweeping grace of salvation. Once for all, the just for the unjust, and that sin is gone forever. However, we still sin, correct? Sure. That effect now, the sins we have now, is not salvation-oriented. It's now relationship-oriented. When we have sin in our life, we lose our chance to grow. We lose our joy, our peace, our usefulness. 
It ruins our ability to have intimate and rich communion with the Father and with other relationships we have. So God wants us to forgive ourselves as He has forgiven us. Forgive others tenderheartedly the way Christ forgiving us. So He gave us forgiveness. And secondly, He gives us wisdom and insight. So the second result of redemption is wisdom and insight. God lavishes upon us. He not only forgives us, taking away the sin that corrupts and distorts our lives, but He gives us all the necessary things, wisdom and insight, to know how to live a sinless life. Yes, I said a sinless life. You and I can live a sinless life. It says with every temptation that comes our way, there's always a way of escape. It's our choice. Paul said, this is a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak of God's wisdom as a mystery, the hidden wisdom. But God has predestined before the ages of glory that we might receive that, and not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of him who is from God, that we might know all things freely given to us. So God has gifted us with wisdom and insight, along with forgiveness, so we not only can live one without guilt and shame, but know how to live. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who will give generously to all. So God has given us wisdom and insight. So that's the results of redemption. Now, finally, number five, what's the reason for redemption? Why do we even have redemption? Why has God done that for us? Why has he blessed us with every spiritual blessing? Why did he choose you and me before the foundation of the world? Why did he choose us to be holy and blameless as of Christ? Why did he predestine us for adoption as his children, redeem us through his blood, and lavishly give us forgiveness, wisdom, and insight? Why did God do that? Let's look at verse 9. Ephesians 1 verse 9 says, This is what God is doing. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan. So it was God's plan to make known to us his purpose and his will set forth in Christ. The whole plan started in Christ for the fullness of time. That's when everything is ready to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sorry about that. God redeems us in order that he might gather everything to himself. The time of that gathering ultimately will be the millennial reign and the kingdom to come. It will be the fullness of time God will bring all things in. When the completion of history comes, the kingdom of God arrives, eternity begins again. A new heaven, a new earth are established. And then there's a, this verse says, a summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ is the goal of history, his glory. It finds its resolution in him. The paradise that Adam lost, Christ restores a new heaven and a new earth. Philippians says it this way, At the name of Jesus, at that point, every knee will bow. Those are in heaven, those in earth, under earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A new heaven and a new earth. Christ will gather the entire universe together. All the believers. Everything will be unified. Everything that's corrupted and divided will be brought back as new and unified. The ruler of this world will be done away with. John 12, 31 says he will be cast out. He and his demon angel will be thrown into a pit and they will be done, never to be heard from again. And then all will be new. That's our hope. Redemption not only redeems us as believers, it redeems all of creation. Romans says that right now creation is groaning, waiting to be redeemed. You see that thorns and thistles, the sweat of our brow. Briars and brambles, that's what grows willfully. But God's going to do away with all that, and all will be new. I'm a gardener. I can't wait till all the weeds are done away with. When every trace of evil has been disposed of, it says God will establish an incomparable unity in himself of all things. Redemption will be complete. That's the goal we're in right now. The reason for redemption is a new heaven and a new earth, beginning with us. All things made new. It's the summing up of all things in Christ, it says here. He designed his great plan in ages past, and now he sovereignly is working that out. No matter who gets elected in a few weeks, God can, God can overrule any leader. God, God is sovereign of all things. He guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I don't care who gets elected. I have my preferences. 
But it's not going to be life and death to me. God's still going to be sovereignly over all things. America's not going to be a great godly country forever. We know that, right? Evil's going to continue to have its way unless God intervenes by making all things new. I'm not waiting for the White House to be just perfect. I'm not waiting for the schools to be just perfect because my God is perfect. Churches won't be perfect until all things are made new. Things in heaven and on earth for His glory, honor, and praise. Verse 11 and 12, as we kind of wrap this up, says it this way. In Him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. That's for the new heaven and earth. An inheritance. We were predestined for it according to His purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You get that? God's working all things. He's not waiting for Biden or Trump to do something. God is working His will. Now, we can get in His way, but God's still working His will. We cannot stop the sovereign will of God. It is working, it says, according to the counsel of His will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's us, might be to the praise of His glory. What does that mean to be to the praise of His glory? Well, in future heaven, new heaven, new earth, all things will be to His glory. We will be perfected. We will know all things as God's always known. But until then, the praise of His glory means that when people look at you and me, Jesus intends for them to see God. So He has works and deeds for us to do so that God may see, others may see God in us. Matthew 5.16 says it this way, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. God has placed you as a light wherever you are. If you're in school, if you're in college, if you're in a workplace, if you're at home, God's placed you there to be a light. You're a mirror that reflects His glory to others around you. They see what you do, and if you tell them, they will give praise and glory to your God. Our purpose on earth is to bring glory and praise to Him right now. We are redeemed. The reason we are redeemed is to reflect glory back to God, and others will see us. In this world and in the world to come. Let me illustrate redemption by asking my wife to come up here for a minute. My beloved. Okay, I'm going to illustrate this for you because I want you to see what redemption really looks like now on earth. The Bible is clear that who is the Redeemer? Who's the redeemed? And how are we redeemed? By the blood of Christ, by the cross. And our hope is in the empty tomb for resurrection. God says that Jesus has done everything it takes to make us reconciled to Him. So about 1960 years after that, give or take a couple of decades, Sandra was born in Dallas, Texas. Moved to Farmer's Branch. And she was as rebellious as you can become depraved, unholy, blameful. Um, and she was a good kid. But in Christ's eyes, to have any sin is to have all sin. And she was without hope. So early in her childhood, she realized that she was without Christ. She needed to be reconciled to God. Now, she didn't use those words. And she knew that she needed a Savior. So at an early age, Sandra came forward, repented of the sin she had at that point, past, future, and present, even though she didn't realize it. She repented of those sins and took by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, took by grace in faith, and she still has that sustained trust that God is holding her because of the cross and because of the resurrection. He says he holds us in his righteous right hand. Now, immediately when Sandra did that, you can do that out loud, you can do it by prayer, you can do it looking at somebody, but whenever you repent and by grace, through faith, trust in Jesus, to be your Redeemer, your Savior, lots of things happen in heaven. One, it says heaven, all of heaven rejoices. But then it says that God takes a righteous robe, and we're going to use this white robe, and He places a robe upon you. Now, the, the symbolism there is this robe covers all that sin. And she is now a child of the King. God automatically did that when she became a believer. And God said, Sandra, I have chosen you. I've forgiven you. 
Your sin is no longer a problem for all of eternity. You're my child. Come on in. And now God sees Sandra. And God says, Sandra, I don't see you because what I see is the cross. I'll be Jesus for a minute. I see the cross when I look at you, Sandra. And I see you as wholly approved, acceptable. All the goodness and mercy I have is yours. You are in Christ. God no longer sees Sandra. Matter of fact, the Bible says Sandra was crucified with Christ. And it's no longer she who lives, but Christ who lives in her. It says she was buried with Christ in the tomb and raised to walk a brand new life. So when God now sees Sandra, he sees the cross. When God sees you and me, he sees the cross. He sees you today through Jesus in Christ. He doesn't see your sins. He doesn't say, goodness gracious guy, girl, what did you do when you were 14? What did you do when you were 24? God's not looking at your first failed marriage. He's saying, goodness sakes, I forgave that. I threw that in the depths of the sea, never to be brought up again. God's not looking at your failures. But God, I've been to prison. God's like, yeah, so has my Savior been to prison. God says, I don't look at that. What I see is Christ. I see perfect, holy, blameless as I see you. That's how God sees you. He sees you as He sees Sandra, holy and approved, forgiven. He holds nothing against you now because Christ paid it all. So don't let the accuser blame you. God's not looking at your sins. They're gone. He's forgotten them. Now, you and I can't forget sin. You know why, right? Because if we forget the pain of sin, we will repeat it. The greater the pain, the longer the memory. So God doesn't let us forget sin, but God forgets it. It's gone. We are covered up and hidden in the cross. That's you and me. That's what redemption is. That's the story of redemption. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that you and I could be holy and blameless. The scripture says he chose us, predestined us to be his children. Amen. Yes. Okay, my love. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. But God has forgiven us. You are approved. You are redeemed. So act like it. Quit beating yourself up. Quit letting others remind you of sins God doesn't remember any longer. You say, uh-uh. That one's gone. It's, it's buried in the sea. Depths of the sea, it's down there way, way deep where even man can't go yet. Don't, don't let other people remind you of that. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some story. It's a glorious fact of history. We are called, chosen, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's greatest blessings for us, we don't deserve, but He gives them to us. It's what grace is all about. It's what the gospel is all about. It's about redemption and reconciliation. It's why this grace and gospel of redemption are so amazing and wonderful, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Three centuries ago, John Newton penned these famous beloved words. He said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That is redemption. Where are you at this morning? Do you know Jesus? Do you know redemption? Have you trusted in all that you know? Do you have sustained faith in that trust? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe he was resurrected and you have a hope in heaven to persevere whatever you're going through right now? It's in Christ or Christ alone. Only he judges you and he says approved. Christ who judges you, he says loved, accepted, fully accepted. John 5, 11 through 13 states eternity like this. This is the testimony, the true fact, that if God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son, then whoever has the Son has life eternally, and whoever doesn't have the Son does not have life eternally. He said, I've written you this so you might know assuredly that you have eternal life and that you've been redeemed. Pray with me, please. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all things. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for the goodness and mercy you give to us. You are our King. 
You are our Father, and we're your children and your servants. God, thank you for the inheritance that you've given us for a future, to give us a future and a hope. Thank you for forgiveness so we don't have to wallow in all the junk we've gone through in our lives, but we can be new and approved and accepted. God, it's all about you. It's for your glory. It's for your praise from now through all of eternity. God, help give us ears and eyes this morning a mind to understand all these things. We want the mind of Christ you've promised us. Give us wisdom and insight to understand all that we have in Christ. And God, protect us from that evil one, the accuser. Get him away from us, God, so we can focus on you and all we have in you. Our identity is in you, Christ. Thank you so much. Whether I feel it, whether I want to know it all the time, God, I believe it. I trust that what your word is, says is true. I believe that I'm a child of the King, that we are children of the King. Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus, I pray for those right now in this auditorium that don't know you, that don't know redemption, that don't understand what a Redeemer is. God, would you pierce their heart right now? Would you help them understand what it takes to be a child of the King? What it takes to believe in the death on the cross paid for their sins, the eternal price. God, what it takes to believe that they can live again for all of eternity because you conquered death. Help them believe again, God, what it takes in order to become a child of the King. Only you can do that, God. Would you give them faith to believe the grace you've given us? Jesus, it's all about you. It's about your kingdom now and your kingdom to come. May you be praised. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. As we continue in worship, one of the things we do at the end of the service is give back to God. With COVID around, you can do that one of two ways. You can either, there's black boxes in the back, or you can text, simply text 73256-73256 and type Life Point Church in there. And I have a setup where then it'll send you a giving link and you can do all that you want to do. We don't need your money. We don't want your money. I want you to give so that you will have credit on your account in heaven. That's what Paul says. Paul says we give back to God so that we'll have blessings in heaven as we have blessings now. And if you made some kind of commitment this morning or you want to make a commitment, if you will text the word new start, all one word, new start to 94,000, we'll get you some more information. Church, you are loved. God loves you with a love you can't even fathom. He's given you a righteousness you can't even fathom. You are His beloved child. He approves of you. He accepts you. He knows who you are and He loves you. He knows your worst thought and doesn't even think about it. He gives you continual cleansing. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and righteous to cleanse you and renew that. So you can do that. You are loved. You are the beloved child of God. If you need prayer this morning, we have um, a prayer team in the back behind that glass. They would love to pray with you, talk over anything you might want to talk over. You are the kingdom right now. As we leave those doors, you are sent into the world as the kingdom to make a difference. I know it's voting time. Don't, don't let that get you down. God is sovereign and in control. Presidents come and go. Leaders come and go. But God is there from beginning to end, this world and the world to come. Thank you. Rob.